this year we're talking about we are the temple of the Lord. We talked about that last week. I'm not going to focus too much on the temple stuff because we did that a lot last week, and we're going to do that again in our Bible classes for the next uh, week. So um, what I do want to do is I want to focus on one aspect of what we just read. And um, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Isaiah 57, that's where we're going to primarily be, is Isaiah 57. Um, as you turn there, I'm just going to remind us of a few things. When we talk about being the temple of the Lord, uh, we think back to when Moses led the children of uh, Israel out of Egypt. God commanded people to build a tabernacle. That's the beginning of the idea of the temple um, as far as a physical structure. Uh, this, that tent uh, served as a place for God to dwell with his people, according to Exodus 25. Um, and, it, and it's meant to like cause them to think back to how it was in the garden. Not that any of them were there, but like the, the idea of being in perfect fellowship with God, that's what the tabernacle is meant to represent. So as time goes on, they become less wanderers and nomads, and they actually get established in the land of Canaan um, as the nation of Israel. Now they have a place in Jerusalem where they set up at the temple. That is the, the permanent structure of the tabernacle, and that is the place where they would go to worship. That's a place for prayers. That's a place of sacrifice. All, but all of that is because it's a place where God dwells. Um, not that God can be confined to a place. Uh, even when Solomon is, is going to build the structure, he understands that not even this earth can contain God. All this earth is where God dwells. It's, it can't contain him. So obviously a building can't contain God. But it still is meant to be a place where God dwells. Um, we see that from 1 Kings chapter 6. And we talked about last week that all of that was under the old covenant. That was God's design and desire because he wants to dwell with his people. We, saw, we see that in Leviticus 26. He's like, I want to tabernacle or dwell among you. You will be my people and I'll be your God. Um, but then in Christ, we have a new temple, a new tabernacle, a new way that God dwells with us. And it's not through a, a physical structure. It's through Christ and because we are in Christ now, we are a dwelling place of God. Um, we see that in John 17 in Jesus' prayer. Uh, he says that, that he wants us to be one just as the Father is in him and he is in the Father, that we may be in him or in them, right? That's, that's part of Jesus' prayer right before he is um, right before he's arrested and then crucified. Um, so last week we ended with two questions. And I want to like start just with this second question that we asked last week which was, would others know that God dwells in you? So we talked about that, and we asked that just to have a moment of reflection to see, am I representing God? Like, th th is God seen through me? But then I started thinking that it, it, it's very common for a lot of us to even call into question if that's possible. Like, who am I to be a dwelling place of God? So that's what I want to talk about today is, can God dwell with me? And I want you to ask yourself that. I want you to think about that. Because I think some scripture we're going to look at today should really answer that the, give us the answer that it's yes, definitively. God can dwell with us. God can and does dwell within us. And there's a great comfort from knowing that it's possible. Um, so Isaiah 57 is a really good passage that we're going to read from in just a second. But one of the interesting things is if you go back and you look uh, actually... In another passage in Isaiah 56, I've referenced this a couple times, and we're going to talk about it in the Bible class today, where God says in verse 7 of Isaiah 56 that um, these I will bring to my holy mountain, make them joyful in my, the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. 
For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So I've been trying to emphasize this because this has been a point of emphasis in my study. Like I, that I've noticed this is kind of a new thing that I've noticed is that God always wanted his temple to be a place where people would, would like flock to this place when they want to know more about him. It's not a place of prayer where the Israelites pray for all the nations necessarily. It's a place of prayer for all nations to come to the temple when they seek God, right? Does that make sense? Like, if you want to know how to find God, you go to the temple. That's basically what, what God is establishing. Um, for us, I think it's a little bit difficult for us to believe that God can dwell with us. But for these people, they knew if, if they wanted to be in a relationship with this Jehovah God, the God of Israel, they go towards the temple, all right? And I don't think it was as difficult for them to understand that as it, maybe it is with us. Um, I, I think Isaiah 57 kind of answers some of those questions that we have, some of the doubts we might have. A little background of Isaiah. It's written primarily to Judah. Uh, they're not captured yet, but it's coming quickly after Isaiah prophesies. So there's a lot of call to like repentance and like a revival of their faithfulness to God. Um, but he is also preparing them for a time where they, where they will be in captivity and ultimately what he's preparing them for is that a coming Messiah would come that would release them and would be the true servant of God that they've always needed. That's really what Isaiah is talking about. So Isaiah 57, the verses are going to be on the screen. We're going to be 14 through 21. And then we're going to bring out some points from this and connect it to some things in the New Testament. So it says, beginning in verse 14, It shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. Real quick, if you are doing the Bible reading plan, we read some this week about John the Baptist and his purpose. This idea of preparing the way for God, that is fulfilled in John, but that's not new, or that's not only something John does. It seems like here in Isaiah, and he might be referencing John here, but I think it's just in general, God wants a path where people see how they can come to him. And that just seems very clear. He's like, prepare the way, like remove the obstructions. He says, verse 15, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked." I want to bring out about six points from this text and connect it to one passage in the New Testament. And the whole purpose is just for us to understand that God can dwell with us and that he wants to dwell with us. The way in which he dwells within us is not something that we're going to talk about today. Uh, a lot of the questions about the, the indwelling and things, we might get into that later. I think it's really just important to understand that God has always desired to dwell with people, people that he calls his, his holy people, his special people. A people for his own possession. That was Israel. Now through Christ, that's meant to be all people everywhere. Um, 
but we have to be in Christ. And God does dwell with those that, that are in Christ. All right, so let's go ahead and get into the first point. First point is that God dwells in high and holy places. It, it emphasizes that in verse 15, 16, and 17. The one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. Where is that? I don't know. <laughs> well, how big is that? I don't, I don't know. Um, can, can you pinpoint inter- eternity on a map? No. But that's where God dwells. God dwells in a place that's so high above us, not necessarily geographically or physically, but just like, just like, um, and not just theoretically, but it's just beyond our comprehension that we can't even fully grasp where eternity is. So where is God? He is, he is there. He is in eternity. It's where he lives. But you can't go and find him like down the street at the building that says eternity, right? That's not where he is. He's in this realm that is above us, that is higher than us, that is greater than anything we've ever seen. His name is holy, it says. And then he says in verse 16, I dwell in the high and holy place. Verse 17 says, because of the iniquity of this person's unjust gain, I was angry. So God separates himself from what is unholy because he is in a place of holiness and in a high place. That's where God is. He is high and holy and is surrounded by high and holy things. Only things that are holy are able to be around him because he only surrounds himself with holiness. Have you ever been to someone's place, uh, someone's house, where uh, the things inside the home don't match the type of home that they live in? Um, so I'm going to use two different examples for that because I've, I've seen it all, I think, when it comes to this. Uh, I've been to a lot of trailer parks and a lot of trailers and things like that um, from where I'm from. And uh, I've been lived in apartments growing up where it was in not great areas and everything. And it's funny the types of things that people fill their homes with when they live in those types of areas. It's really nice stuff. And, like, it... it it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like, whoa, don't, no, don't, don't mess up that, that coffee table. Okay, so it's like, well, we're, we're kind of in like a dumpy place. What are we talking about? Why do you have such nice things? Why are you so concerned with your china cabinet in this place that like really isn't that nice? That's how much people care about the things that are good and nice, even in the midst of a place that might not be considered that nice. Like we, they, we have respect for people's really nice things. Have you ever been to someone's house that is really just, I mean, looks amazing and it looks like, Maybe not holy, but it looks really high and just like, wow, this is a nice house. And inside is just kind of garbage the way they treat it. Like, it doesn't make sense. There's an imbalance sometimes when we see that. But God, that's not the case. He lives in a high and holy place, and he only allows the high and holy things around him. That's who he is. He is holy. So he only allows holy things around him. That presents a problem for people, though, right? It presents a problem for these people and us. How can I expect for God to dwell with me and for me to be in his midst when he only allows holy things before him? That's when we get to verse 15. Verse 15 says that I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God reaches down to the lowly. He's also with the ones that are lowly in spirit and contrite. You notice he doesn't say, I'm also with the perfect. I'm also with the whatever. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't say anything like, I'm also with the holy, I mean, the, the, the lowly and the contrite. Um, Psalm 138 verse 6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. We don't see that in these passages that sin separates people from God, although we know that's true. What we see here is that pride separates people from God. The assumption is that you are wanting to 
take care of your sin so that God can be in your midst and you can be in his midst. You want God to dwell with you. Well, it's a given that you've got to take care of the sin. The real problem is in, in that pursuit of wanting to dwell, dwell with God and have him dwell with you is if you're prideful. Because then you don't take care of that sin. You don't actually uh, seek forgiveness, truly. Um, we know God dwells in high and holy places. We know we are not high and holy. But the way that we are able to be with him is not just because we perfect ourselves. It's actually because he reaches down and he is with the contrite and the lowly, the humble. That's what we see here. Being contrite means that we consider ourselves like dust or destroyed. Being contrite means we're crushed like a powder. So the idea here is that the person that is broken and crushed because they see who they are and they see their unworthiness of God is the exact person that God reaches down and wants to dwell with them. It's not the person that is destroyed because their sin is destroying them. It's because they are contrite because their sin is uh, causing them to be unworthy of God and they seek to be in God's presence. It's not just because of the ramifications of their sin. It's just the idea of, I have sinned against the holy God. That's what, that's what it means to be contrite. Psalm 34 also says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. There's a passage in Corinthians that says that um, godly sorrow leads to repentance. There's a lot of different types of sorrow. There's a lot of different things that cause us to be brokenhearted. But I think what we see here in Isaiah 57 is that God wants us to seek him and seek his holiness so much that he'll like overlook and put away all that unholiness. We got to be humble though. We got to be willing to seek him, to go through the brokenheartedness of what our sin does to us and actually humbly come before him. Um, that I, I'm the person that has a sense of justice where I just want, I, I want to see or hear that someone um, acknowledges what they've done because I just think that that is what needs to happen. Like, I need to see and hear that they, they really look contrite. Um, that's a terrible uh, form of justice for us to desire as Christians, right? Um, because that's not God's justice. Like, he's the one that sees contrite hearts and broken hearts. We don't see that. Like, we can see a countenance fall. We can see tears fall. Because he changed lives. I think God wants, I think God is pleased with all of that, I guess, as long as it's coming from a true, tender, broken, contrite heart. So if you want to be before God and have God dwell with you, you need a broken, contrite heart. That's what God desires for us to have. And when we really think about who he is and think about what we've done, an a natural response should be that we are contrite, that we see ourselves as lowly but we have to make sure that we do away with pride because the haughty he knows from afar. He separates himself from the prideful. So there are obstacles between us and God. It says that in verse 14, and I think we just mentioned one of those obstacles. One of the obstacles between us and God is pride. Since God is near the humble and brokenhearted, pride is an obstacle. So if you have pride, then you have something that is separating you from God. I'm not saying that like uh, God doesn't know you, you don't know anything about God. I'm just saying that as far as your closeness to God so that God dwells with you and you dwell with him, pride gets in the way. Pride takes a lot of forms. Um, I've seen in my life that pride can take the form of 
thinking I'm great. I've also seen in my life that pride can take the form of thinking so little of myself that I make everything about me. <laughs> Either way, that's pride, and it gets in the way of us and God. Sin in general is an obstacle, um, so it could be anything. It could be any sin, and we need to seek to remove those obstructions, remove those obstacles. I, I hesitate sometimes to pray to God that he would reveal my sins that I don't know about. More recently, I've realized that that's actually a really good thing. I want to know, like, what are the things that, maybe not what is this thing from a long time ago, because I'm, I'm trusting that God, can, God has forgiven that, but like, what's something that could be recurring that I'm blind to, that I'm not seeing, because I don't want that obstruction. That's an obstacle between me and God, and I don't want that. Lack of knowledge could be an obstacle, not that you have to know everything, but lack of knowledge can be an obstacle. If we don't know God, how can we ever expect to, to draw near to him? we don't know him, how can we know what it means that he is holy and high? How can we truly seek him? One of the biggest questions that Leviticus explains is that God is holy, but people can still dwell with him. So one of the questions that Leviticus presents is, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unclean people? Right? And, and the cool thing about the passage that Stephen just read in Leviticus 26 is he just does. And he presents the the path to that, and he presents the way for that. So I put Leviticus 26 up here, uh, several verses from there. You, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to, you can. And I just want to notice a few passages from Leviticus 26, specifically about how did we remove obstacles and, and obstructions? Because we don't do the same things that they did in Leviticus, but there's a certain path that I think God has always desired his people to take when they want to draw near to him. So Leviticus 26 Verses one and uh, verse one says, "You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. You shall not set up a figure, figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God." Then we skip to verse eleven. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and shall you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. One of the things I think is interesting is God perpetuates uh, the, the need and the necessity of, of knowledge, of who God is and what he has done. Like he makes sure that this whole thing with like, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, that's going to be said over and over again. That's going to be, the people are going to be reminded of that for years and years. Why? Because they need to know God they need to know what he has done for them and how he's brought, what he's brought them out of. Knowledge gets in the way, and it can be an obstacle between us and God. God reminds the people over and over again, this is what I've done, this is where you were, and this is where I've brought you. We need those reminders too. We need to be reminded of who God is, what we have done, and what he has done to bring us out of our yoke of slavery to sin. Let's keep going Leviticus 26, verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments... If you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not, so you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you: I will visit you with panic. And then he goes on across several verses to say what he's going to do. He's going to punish them. Pick in verse twenty-seven. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. So God is saying here. If you don't do what I say, if you break my covenant, then I'm going to make it clear that you've broken my covenant. 
I'm going to visit you, and I'm going to discipline you. Um, that's going to take a lot of different forms in Leviticus 26. And then he goes on to say, and if you continue to ignore me and don't listen to me and walk contrary to me, then I'm going to continue to do that. Uh, we're going to go through this process until you turn back to me. And if in the end you still want to turn away, all right, well, you're going to have to pay punishment for your sins. But then he goes on to say, but if they confess, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember the land. Isn't this kind of like us? Like, I mean, you think about this. God says, like, don't have another God, don't have idols or anything, like, you know, just... You need to see me as God. I'm going to walk among you, and I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. That's what we have in Christ. But then we have this problem of sin and iniquity. And I think what God is saying here is, like, pretty clearly, I need you to, like, do away with that. And if you're not going to do away with that, there's going to be punishment. And some of that discipline and punishment sometimes is a way just to turn us back to him. But if we will confess, then he looks at us and just says, okay, they're my people. I'm going to remember my covenant with them. That's exactly the situation we're in. We are in a situation where we need to have, we need to, uh, have hearts that are humbled so that we desire God to dwell among us. So but going back to Isaiah 57, knowing that there are obstructions, knowing that God is so high and holy, we become holy through humility. Like that's what happened with the people in Leviticus, right? They become the people of God even after they sin and, and even after they continue to sin. If they will just confess, if they will just humble themselves, then God considers them his people. They will be holy. In Isaiah 57, verse 17 and 18, he says, Because of iniquity, he says, I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. We don't want to be people that continue to backslide. Ignore that, ignore the reproof and the discipline of God. The emphasis in Leviticus 26 and Isaiah 57 is, seems to me to be humility, that that's the key to returning to a holy state, to turning back to a holy God so that He can dwell with us. And that's what we need today, even in Christ. We need humility. We don't need perfection. We don't need our own sense of justice. We don't need just rules and regulations. Like, that's not all God wanted them to do, was just to know and do the rules and regulations. He says, I want you to be humble as well, humble of heart. So what we see is that God dwells in humble and holy people. And our path to holiness is through humility. So he makes it easy for us. Just be humble. <laughs> be humble and seek his holiness. This is, this, is not new, this is not just in the Old Testament. There's one passage I want to turn to. Uh, in, in the New Testament, it's James chapter 4. Uh, it's also going to be on the screen, but I'm going I'm to turn there just because I don't like reading from the screen sometimes. So, Because uh, also it makes me do this, and I can't uh, speak out towards you. But in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, we see that James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So you adulterous people, isn't that kind of how Leviticus 26 started? 
don't have idols and things like that. Like that, that's what it means to be an adulterous people. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He, the, the prideful, he has a far off, right? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your gloom, your joy to gloom. At the end of Isaiah 57, it talked about the mourners. We see that here as well. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God exalts us to high and holy places through humility. We are an adulterous people. We have sought the world in sin, and he just says you need to separate from that. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. So how... How can we actually have a clear path to God? Well, he says right here, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. Like he wants us and he wants us to want him. And if we're going to do that, we're going to have to be humble people. We're going to have to be people that draw near to him, that resist the devil, that have confidence that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. How that works in the spiritual realm and the spiritual warfare, I don't even fully understand. But like he just says it, resist the devil. Resist sin. When you notice temptation, notice that there's a way of escape. Resist the devil. He's the accuser. He's the one setting traps. He's seeking who he can devour. Resist him. And he says it in such a simple way. But we draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. We, we need to cleanse ourselves of sin. And we need to seek to remove it from our life, but we also know that we still sin. So what do we do when we continue to sin? I guess we just continue looking to him to be cleansed. That, that's who we are. We're people that just seek to be cleansed, humbly. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Like we're not people that are, we shouldn't be people that are trying to have one foot in one place and in the other at the same time. But that's a cool idea when you're trying to have one foot in one state and one foot in another. That's, that's cool and everything. But as far as our spiritual state, that's not what we need. We need to be firmly planted with God, firmly planted in holiness and high places. Not in the worldliness and wickedness that we have all around us. And then he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. We need to be sorrowful. We need, we need to truly be brokenhearted over our sin. All the laughter needs to be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. I don't like the sound of that, but that's what we need. We need that in order to draw near to him. And that's why at the end he says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's not about us exalting ourselves. It's not about us just having a good time and like trying to ignore our sin and the things we struggle with. That's not what it's, it's about. Just humbly come before God and he will exalt us. So God does dwell with us. He wants to dwell with us, and all it takes is humility from us. Um, going back to Isaiah 57, the last, uh, last point that I want to draw out from is just from the last uh, couple verses there. 
I'm going to reread it one more time. It says in verse 19, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. God dwelling in us gives us peace. Kind of like what we talked about uh, Thursday night with our class. We're talking about what it means to be in the heavenly places and all of that and like be seated with Christ and how that's a reality now, even though it doesn't seem real now. It's a spiritual reality. Um, God dwelling in us does give us peace. That doesn't mean we always feel at peace, though, right? Like there can be a lot of things going on in life that cause turmoil and unrest. And yet, as long as God dwells with us, we have peace. Because we look to a land that is promised that we have not inherited yet. And we look to a status with God where we are just with him in all his glory, and we just don't have that right now. But it could be that we don't feel peace because we have sin. That's very real. You could have sin right now, and you have not dealt with it, and so you don't feel at peace. It might mean that you don't understand what to do and how, you, how God can dwell with you. So you have lack of understanding. That's the obstruction for you. It might be that you lack confidence in the mercy and the love of God, and instead you're just seeking to make yourself confident by your own actions and by your own, I don't know, view of yourself. Like you don't feel good about yourself, so you're not at peace, so let me just feel better about myself and be confident and create this fake confidence. If any of those things are true, then God doesn't dwell with us. So that's why we don't have peace. Because we have sin that we're not dealing with. Because we don't know him and we're not really trying to grow in our understanding of who he is. Maybe because we're trying to just feel better about ourselves and not, we're not dealing with the stuff that's getting in the way of us and him. And if that's the case, then the, the pattern that we see in Leviticus, in Isaiah, and in James is all the same. Don't go on backsliding. Don't ignore those things. Don't ignore that sin. Don't try to cover it up. What we need to do is we need to cleanse our hands. Purify our hearts. Humbly seek him. Submit to the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4 is, a, is like a really, really good just checklist of what do I need to do so that I can make sure that I am right with God. Okay, I need to cleanse myself. What does that look like? It looks like praying to God and confessing my sin to him. It looks like seeking to put that sin away, truly cleansing myself, not cleansing just so I can get dirty. That's silly. But cleansing myself because I need to be cleansed to come before God. It might mean that you need to be baptized. It might mean that you just need to truly repent. It might mean that you need prayers of, of the saints that are here. And if it's lack of understanding, then what, what you need to do is you need to truly pursue knowing God. Not just knowing other things about life. Like, I, I think there's a lot of books and resources that are really helpful. But if you're seeking to know thing, more things about just who you are and life around you instead of God, then, well, that's, that's not helping. That's not going to allow you to really draw near to him and for him to dwell with you. And if it's your lack of confidence because you're just building confidence for yourself, you just want to feel better then it's going to take a little bit of effort. It's going to take breaking down that confidence. It's going to take true humility, which causes you to rely on God and not yourself. 
Though the Lord is high and exalted, he regards the lowly. He reaches down and he lifts us up. Here at the end of James 4, what it says is that he will exalt us. Through Jesus Christ, God has offered peace to the far and near. So what we need to do is we need to draw near to God. So the first question that we asked at the very beginning is, can God dwell with me? The answer is yes. He, do, he can, and he wants to. And the path for how he will, maybe we haven't looked at uh, in, in like, we haven't looked at exhaustively. That's even a word. Um, I think that's a word. Uh, maybe we haven't looked at all the details of it. I think it's pretty clear. Just humbly seek him. Humbly seek to know him. Humbly put away sin. We need to truly submit ourselves. Like, bowing our knees before him can be a physical posture, but it can be a heart posture as well. That needs to be how we come before God. Humbly bow before him. Draw near to him. And don't seek just to pick ourselves up and exalt ourselves. Trust that he exalts us. So that's what we need to do. Um, so if you need to draw near to God, and you don't know how to do that, and or maybe you do know, but you're just struggling to cleanse yourself of sin and whatever it might be, then God's people are meant to help you. So we want to help you. If you know exactly what you need to do and you just haven't done it, well, don't delay. <laughs> draw near to God. Draw near, draw near to him now. Let's be a humble people that are then exalted. And even if we don't feel exalted in this life, we trust that God will exalt us one day. Let's go ahead and say a prayer and then we'll have one more song with Scott and then we'll wrap up. God, you are high and holy, and you deserve only holy things and holy people, and yet we are unholy and sinful, and we just thank you for reaching down to us through the blood of Christ so that you lift us up. You make it clear that there is a path to you, and God, we, we ask that you will help us to see how we can remove the obstacles so we can just pursue you, draw close to you, so that we dwell with you and you dwell with us. And God, we know that we won't feel that we are perfectly dwelling with you at all in this life. But that doesn't mean it's not true. It's just that we are waiting to be dwelling with you in your home in eternity forever. So I pray that we will have peace and comfort. That if we, as long as we are in Christ, that you do dwell with us. And I pray that we will have confidence that you will exalt us one day to be with you forever. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for um, the path to righteousness that is through him and not through ourselves. And we thank you most of all for being so loving and being so merciful and gracious that you desire us and that you call us yours. Cleanse us, purify us, Lord. We pray that you will strengthen us so that we will resist the devil. And Lord, we submit to you. And we pray that you will continue to, to fill us with hope and confidence in you and not in anything in this life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.